welcome back to another episode of the Vikingology podcast. I am your co-host CJ Adrian. I am your co-host Terry Barnes and this is the art and science of the Viking Age. And today we're going to talk about one of the first topics we always talk about in Viking studies is why did the Vikings leave Scandinavia in the first place? In fact, last night I was at a restaurant and I ran into some lovely people and we got to talking and they found out that I know maybe this much about Vikings. And that's the first question I always get. What what was the deal? Why did they leave Scandinavia to go pillage? Why were they so bad? She actually asked, were they always so bad? And those questions I just had to, I didn't even know where to start. <laughs> you start by saying, well, define bad. <laughs> yeah. it was an age of violence everybody was bad by our standards yeah. anyway but <laughs> right right so my my question then to her would be well like okay what what is a viking do you know what a viking is <laughs> and then i would yeah, let's like, start there let's just let's do some uh nomenclature nomenclature <laughs> yeah okay well so we're going to start where we're going to end up in a lot of cases with this, and that is saying, let's let's frame this in terms of a lot of stuff we don't know, actually, with 100% certainty about the Viking Age. Um, but there is consensus based on good evidence and research that the word vikinger in Old Norse, which is basically the word Viking with an R on the end of it, is a word that was used at the time and was understood roughly, loosely in our modern idea of it to mean a pirate. So probably somebody who wasn't nice <laughs> and engaged in quasi-criminal activity. <laughs> well, and to give our viewers a sense of just how thorny of an issue just the word Viking is, mm -hmm. uh, saying it was used at the time, my understanding is the only Old Norse Uses, uses that we have are from saga literature or no we spoke with William Short and Rainer Oskarsson they did yeah. say there were there were rune stones that had it yeah here let me get the bible and uh yeah exactly that is exactly right um okay. as far as the etymology though I did read I think it was Neil Price who mentioned that yes, exactly. it was a it was a borrowed word from the Frisians, Wisingas, which was pirate? Potentially, yeah. Uh, again, this is one of those things that is um, not known with 100% certainty, but also that the derivative of the sort of the V-I-K in the word Viking uh, is from the old Norse word vik, which is, you know, modern day people maybe have heard of like Reykjavik in Iceland. I right. mean, a vik is, a, is an inlet or a bay and that these people originally, you know, came from places like that. So, right. That's one candidate for the etymology of the word. But then going right. back to there, it could also have been Wisingas, which then and that was interesting because he did say that it would have been an import from the Anglo-Saxon language okay. into yeah. into old norse yeah because i mean we they brought a lot of their language into dane law and it's it stands to reason that they would have taken words back as well yeah exactly well and that's one thing too we'll probably talk about over and over on this podcast and that is this idea of the you know massive amount of movement of people in that world um you know people were taking to the roads and taking to the seas and the vikings just happened to be people who took to the seas probably more so and better than anybody else and yeah i mean and, and like you mentioned neil price i mean in his book he talks about the fact that they basically went farther than any of their contemporaries and they visited or, or is settled in more than 40 present-day countries all over the european and eurasian 
world. So um, yeah, I mean, so then, yeah, this thing that we're talking about today, as far as like, well, why? <laughs> why did they right. do? You well, know, start then, with the who. That's the question. Right. So yeah, so the who, the Vikingers. So, and actually this is something I do, I'll go in my teacher mode. This is something I do with my students too, because in modern, for people who maybe are interested in Vikings, like the woman that you, you met last night, um, but for them, they don't know very much because the Vikings are sort of shrouded in modern pop culture and or, you know, 1000 years of time that has passed. So the mists of time, as it were, um, you know, the, they don't, what we do is we tend to conflate a Viking with Norse peoples in Scandinavia, right? And so just to be clear, to be a Viking is not an ethnicity. To be a Viking is essentially a job description. Uh, not all people who were Scandinavians were Vikings, far from it, actually. So, um, you know, we can kind of start there, but um, I will do a good old fashioned Zoom share screen here and we can look at at least like where, um, so this is the world that we're talking about and uh, those numbers appearing in yellow and red there, those are roughly dates that uh, Scandinavians went to those areas, but you can see they're, they're all over. I mean, this is Europe, right? And we're getting into what is now, you know, Russia, uh, the Baltic states over here. This is Scandinavia, so Norway and Sweden uh, that we're talking about, Denmark down here. Um, and then, of course, Vikings making it all the way west to what says Vinland, but... CJ, what is Vinland? Oh, it's it's the North American colony. Yep. That was confirmed. Well, it was in saga literature, and then they actually, yeah, that's Lonso Meadows is the site where they have reconstructed the uh, yeah. the longhouse. Yeah. And yeah. Really interesting saga. There's a lot. There's so much we don't know. I mean, it's ninety nine percent speculation. But yeah, Vinland. But so I do want to point out this map. It shows two thousand and five. Right. And there has been a lot of scholarship, recent scholarship, you know, 15, whoa, 17, 18 yeah. years. It's 2023. My yeah, goodness, exactly. I need to keep track. Yeah, it's yeah. Keeping up. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a lot of these, so especially with that eastward expansion, it shows, you know, 82854. Sure, those are, uh, those were well known through through literature. But then you have like that little green on the Baltic there, Estonia, what's now Estonia, Latvia. Uh, you had the Groben colony, and then they found that the, that eastward expansion may have started much earlier, like in the early 700s. Or before that, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. actually, yeah. Even before that. Yeah. So, yeah. And we actually do know. So this settlement here, which um, has been referred to as the Deadwood of... <laughs> This, the, the 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 age, I guess. Um, Staraya Lagoda is a place that is at the mouth of the Volkov River and made it so that it was very easy for Vikings or the Rus, as we call them, to come down into um, you know what is now Russia. But that this has been um, uh, dated to like 753, I think, is the day. So mm -hmm. as far as the beginnings of that settlement, and it was one of those important what they call. Uh, nodes, N-O-D-E, uh, as far as, you know, these these places that just are drawing people from all over for, for trade and, and other things. So, um, yeah, I mean, some of this stuff is pretty early, but I think this map just as kind of a general sketch to just say, look, this, particularly the blue lines, right? Th this is where these people are going um, in, in a lot of yeah. uh, ways. And then the other thing is, too, um, I think that's just important for people to kind of understand uh, about 
Okay, so what is the Viking Age? You know, so those dates that you saw there, I mean, roughly what we're talking about as historians is the middle of the eighth century to around the year 1100. Of course, those are, you know, as historians do, we kind of chunk things up and put them in these little boxes just so that we can study them more easily relative to other periods of time and places. But, um, you know, so that means it's kind of not hard and fast rules on either end there, because we do know that, you know, there's arguments for even in all the different places that the Vikings went that it ended, you know, in, in roughly different periods of time. Uh, but 1100 is, is a good date to cuff. So that's what we're talking about. And then also it's important to know that the people who lived in Scandinavia prior to the arrival of Christianity, which happens roughly speaking around the end of the first millennia, uh, were living in an almost entirely oral culture. And uh, we know they had runic inscriptions, they had an alphabet, but they're not writing literature in it. And they're not certainly writing, you know, extensive documents that we can dig up and read about what they were doing. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to get to the heart of a culture when the transmission of knowledge and information was happening in an oral way. Also, the Scandinavians up there in the north um, were able to hang out and be their own thing for a long period of time. So I have to say there's many times when I sort of think to myself, relative to other medieval people, what's the big deal about Vikings? You know, they seem kind of fairly similar to everybody else in a lot of ways. But this is one of the ways that they were different, and that is that they hung out there. Uh, in, in basically the pre-Christian state of being for much longer than anybody else in Europe uh, almost. And so um, they're, they're just kind of up there in the north and they don't get to be part of the Frankish empire, which you know so much about, uh, the Carolingians, you know, Charlemagne, uh, Charles the Great, as it were, uh, or even the old Roman empire that had ended in the late fifth century. So that means they're not part of their education systems. They're not part of their legal systems. They're, you know, of the literacy levels that came with being part of those empires did not really translate up into the far north and so they're they're their own thing hanging out there and so this does of course create a problem with um how we know about them and that has to be a, a good question for anybody who's really interested in vikings it's like what if i wanted to learn about them what is it i'm supposed to look at and or read in order to find that out so what do you think those things might be, CJ? Well, but before I answer that question, I do do it just I had a couple of thoughts just going back. One of the one of the things I like to always share is that there there are two schools of thought when it comes to the delineation of, you know, the so-called Viking Age, right? You have the historical Viking Age, and we see this a lot in modern pop culture. You see people reference it. The 793 attack on Lindisfarne is the beginning, you know, beginning of the Viking Age, and then you have 1066, the uh, Norman invasion of England as the end of the Viking Age. Now, of right. course, both events happen in England, in England, so yeah. it is not a far stretch to say that the people who started looking at this were probably from England, and they spoke English, and we also speak English, and so there is a, an inheritance of Anglocentrism in regards yes. to the study of the Viking Age. And being French, I'd like to point that out. <laughs> and there's also, yeah, you I know, no, because the Vikings were also in France very early. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, on that uh, on that uh, note as well, there's the archaeological viewpoint, which is you'll hear archaeologists reference the Scandinavian Iron Age. Yeah. 
which roughly starts at the beginning of the 8th century and ends around 1100 like you were saying and so it expands that yes it expands that time frame past these historical markers but the reason we use those historical markers is because you know 120 years ago when people were first starting to look into this or 150 years ago they didn't have the archaeological finds i mean the galakstad ship wasn't even found until the 1880s late 1880s yeah right around the turn of the century as with the Osberg mm -hmm. as well yeah and yeah. so all they had were the written sources and those written sources are just not complete they just don't give us a very good picture of things and so there's and those misconceptions have persisted they've stayed in what i like to call the the academic sphere for yes. probably far far too long so we're still kind of peeling back that proverbial onion if you will yeah absolutely absolutely okay and so then the layers of the onion can consist of poetry we do know that there is poetry that has been written down that came you know originated in Scandinavia in in the Viking age uh, even though you know many of these things that we're going to say are written sources that historians like me tend to rely on are you know products of at the earliest coming in the 12th and 13th century um, so people will be like, okay, well, you're writing about it after the fact. And it's like, that's true, but there are people who were using, you know, fairly reliable sources at the time for what they had available to them. Also people like Snorri Sturluson as a famous sort of, um, example who, even though he was a Christian writing after the Viking age, he was also Icelandic. He was a chieftain. He's writing about his own culture, his own people, and he's got access to information, um, that we, you know, have to sort of, you know, not completely discredit credit um give him a benefit of the doubt a bit but there's edic poetry which he is part of that um corpus and then there's um skaldic poetry um and so we have skalds who were you know court poets as it were which is not unusual not unique to the vikings this is a phenomenon you can find essentially all over the world you know the sort of the the guy who gets hired to sing the ballads in the in the mead hall that praise the great deeds and ballads or or, or uh, battles, I should say, of the, you know, the king or whatever. Um, but so these poems, um, and, and again, are similar, some of them, the skaldic poems are similar to like even what you'd find with Homer, you know, and, and the Odyssey and the Iliad and things like that, these kind of warrior epics. Um, but we also, of course, have the saga literature, which uh, comes from Iceland. And so those are important stories, um, you know, and there's always, as you know, right, there's the, the debate that always has kind of raged uh, in the Viking studies about whether or not the sagas are actually history or whether or not they're just complete fabrications and they're just more akin to literature. Uh, I don't know, what do you and think? We know that? now that they're they're not complete fabrications because, for example, the Groban colony is mentioned by Snorri Sturluson, and it was found. It's it is an archaeological fact, so there is some corroboration. I always like to make the parallel between that. I forget the guy's name, but he's this German archaeologist who's convinced he could find Troy, and everybody yes, told him yes. he, was, he was insane. They're like, "Oh, it's fiction," and then he he found it. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so 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 when we can actually find physical things, so then we know the sagas aren't complete fabrication. Although the work of a historian is to parse out fiction from fact and and that's not easy to do no that's right exactly and um in in a later episode here coming up in um you know maybe about a month's time or so we are going to have a scholar on who is an archaeologist and historian who's done some work in iceland where they also did 
um, the same kind of thing that you're just mentioning, uh, but this was a specific more so to the fairly famous saga, if anybody's familiar with the sagas of Eil Scott Le Grimson, who was a, a warrior poet in his own time in the Viking Age, and um, doing some excavations just outside of Reykjavik and actually finding things that very much, you know, line up with what's in the saga. So, um, so, you know, as I tell my students, it's, it's never either this or this, right? It's not, is it history or is it literature? It, it's, it's, a, it's both. And I think that the consensus is pretty much that at this point. But so we have sagas. We also have myths and the mythology. Uh, again, I'll call out Snorri Sturluson because he's one of our main sources for what we know about cosmology in the Viking Age. And, um, you know, a thing that actually draws a lot of my students to taking Viking history is Norse mythology. So we do have that. We also have the laws. Um, primarily, uh, the Icelandic law codes are probably the most complete, but we also have others from uh, places like in Norway and, and other parts of Scandinavia. But and I tell my students this too. It's like, you know, you might think boring reading law codes, but man, you can learn actually a lot of interesting things about cultures by what they prohibit um, and what they deem to be inappropriate behavior that has legal consequences. So uh, we do have some of that. The law codes uh, predate um, the written era, but they were written down in the very early 12th century. So they're pretty contemporaneous almost with uh, the Viking Age itself. We also have chronicles, chronicles and things written by outsiders. So you've heard of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, right, CJ? The what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can I can quote it verbatim in a lot of places. It's kind of sad, actually. My friends think I'm very strange. You're not hanging luckily out with I, <laughs> Luckily, I play Dungeons and Dragons with a really cool group, and I, I can throw some of this stuff in there, you know? Yeah, right? You're, you're guy who's like actually that's not the way it went down so these chronicles are basically you know for a modern mind it's like think of a long-term diary you know it's just like let's have a, a diary entries that last for hundreds of years people are writing in this year this happened people came the weather sucked so and so died you know and then the next year or whenever that that they're they're just continuing it on and on and on um well, should i read from it i have a whole bookcase full of chronicles should i read from one that's <laughs> yeah uh, that's a good one uh oh, here the annals of saint burton this is a good oh, one. there you go Late that's that viking genitz uh let's see Ooh, 843 uh i'm just gonna look for mentions of the vikings yeah I, ha I have it bookmarked so obviously there's a viking on here somewhere yeah uh, Ooh, northmen pirates attacked nantes slew the bishop and many clergy and lay people of both sexes that that is a, an interesting precision yeah, exactly. <laughs> and sacked the civitas civitas is a latin word for basically the cit the citadel city um, yeah. Then they attacked the western parts of Aquitaine to devastate them too. Finally, they landed on a certain island, we think it was Normoutier, mm. brought their households over from the mainland and decided to winter there in something like a permanent settlement. That's actually, for my research, a very important passage. But anyway, yeah, that's yeah. fun. So, yeah. written very, it's very boring literature. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, I mean, but it's, I think it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's for them, clearly it was noteworthy. So we have these, that's St. Bertin. We have other, the Annals of Ulster from Ireland. We have Anglo-Saxon Chronicle from England. If any of you all out there have ever either read the books or watched The Last Kingdom on Netflix, you'll know at the beginnings of the seasons, we had Alfred of Wessex, who was a very great English king. And he's basically the one who was responsible for kind of getting, getting that Anglo-Saxon Chronicle going so that it could chronicle all the great things that were going on while he was king. Uh, but anyway, so those are good sources. At least there we have notations then of like when the Norse were showing up and, and all of that and what they were doing. Uh, the other accounts by outsiders are people all over the Viking world that we showed on the map who, um, you know, so these are people who are not Norse, not Scandinavian. Uh, so like that's why I'm, you know, including this description here of, you know, Muslims and Christians. Um, so people who are kind of looking at Scandinavian culture and the Norse and the Vikings, you know, from the outside and then remarking about what they were up to. We've got that. And then also, like CJ was mentioning before, we've got, you know, archaeology. And we'll definitely be talking to a couple of archaeologists coming up here real shortly within a month or two on the podcast so they can give us a good idea about how that has um, developed over time because it has developed quite a bit. And, you know, written sources, we can read them and, you know, kind of try to glean what we can from them. And they, they have to be interpreted, though. Archaeology is the same thing. You know, it might might seem very simple to be like digging up a pot or a bowl or, you know, this cup and be like, oh, it's a cup. I know exactly what that was for, what they did with it and everything. But not everything that you dig up out of the ground is like that. Some things you dig up and it's like, what is this and why did they use it? And so there's no written evidence to tell us this is a thing and this is what they did with the thing. And so it also, uh, things have to be interpreted as well. And what's really helping to do that is hard science in more recent times, because we have things like being able to do DNA and genetic testing on bones, osteology on bones, uh, isotopic analysis on things like uh, people's teeth so that we can determine you know, where they came from. Uh, so there's- On there's fish bones. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Right. So we'll, we'll get into that later. I, I like to say archaeology is where all the action is happening right now, because the sources, the written sources are so are extremely limited. And we've been essentially beating a dead horse for a century. It's thousands of people looked at them, interpreted them, written about them. We've we've circled back and forth and and there's just there's nothing new coming out of the written sources because there's just they, there's nothing new about them. There's not new ones coming out. Uh where in contrast, archaeology, there's something new coming out every week. And I yeah. have like, you know, my little notification that says, oh, they found this or there's this new thing, you know, and, and so that's where all the action is happening. And that's where we're, we're doing most of our learning about the time period now. Yeah, I agree. And the, I mean, and the interesting part about it too, is the archaeologists now are not so hamstrung as they were maybe 100, 150 years ago when they're digging up some of this stuff in the middle of the 19th century, because they've got modern science to be able to tell them with more certainty about aspects of things. Um, I mean, one of our podcast guests coming up too is going to talk about the importance of though, uh, the interdisciplinarity of this approach that it's it, none of these things can sort of live in their own little silos, whether it's history and, and text and written sources versus archaeology versus hard science or whatever or saga literature, whatever it happens to be. 
those things all need to be used together if we're really going to paint a pretty full picture of what we understand about the Vikings. But I will say, and I will concede this as a historian who basically, you know, relies on the text a lot. I've always been for an interdisciplinary approach, but the archaeology is the only thing that we can say for any certainty that we actually have from the Viking age, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the written sources, we know we don't, right? Those were written a, a little bit after the end of the Viking age proper, but archaeology, you dig stuff up and you can appropriately and with certainty date things to a certain period of time. And so we can say, yeah, this object came from the Viking age. Then lastly, what we got here is just the secondary sources. So things like that you write, your even with your historical fiction, because it's well-researched or, you know, journal articles or whatever that you've written, as I've written, um, you know, books that historians have written, things like that. So um, looking at people's various interpretations of the Viking Age and how those develop over time uh, all play a role in, in telling us, you know, who these people were. All right, so now I will stop sharing and we can kind of talk a little bit, I guess, about now that we know kind of when they were and a little bit of who they were, what's the deal with these Viking people? What are these guys doing? Why are they, why in the eighth century does it appear that somebody went, I'm tired of sitting on the couch, let's go out and like, you know, steal some things and kill some people. Why does that happen? Well, let's, let's dispel the first what i like to call myth about the the beginning of the viking age and that is that they appeared suddenly and out right. of nowhere exactly. they just if when you, if you ask historians from the 20th century or if we had the ability to most of them are dead but <laughs> these secondary <laughs> sources we talk about they just they presume that the anglo-saxon chronicle is correct that they just appeared out of nowhere and and that is actually not the case. Even the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has an entry four years before Linda's Farm, which is the so-called beginning of the Viking Age in England, talking about an incident at the Port of Portland where the so-called Vikings uh, killed the king's reeve because they tried to levy taxes on them. Right. Evidently, the Vikings were not keen on paying taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that is actually true. We have other accounts where they like you know, take false oaths, which is a bad thing to do, and and pretend to be this or that, you know, monotheists so that they don't have to pay the tax for in, in various right. trade relationships. Yeah. yeah. And there's a phenomenal study that came out, I want to say three, four years ago. I could be off on that, but it it found through studying whetstones, the production of whetstones, yeah. that trade between Norway, so this quarry that made the whetstones where the whetstone rock came from up in yeah. Norway, uh, reached the, what is now Normandy in the early eighth century. So several decades before. So there, there were trade networks between those areas long before the beginning of the so-called Viking age. So yeah. did they appear suddenly? No, there was an awareness of who they were. Uh, I think some of Charlemagne's chroniclers talk about this we don't know if charlemagne really you know did the things that are his chroniclers say like there's a scene where he goes down to Aquitaine, and then the vikings try to attack the town that he's in he happens to be there they figure this out so they turn tail and run viking ships were so quick they got out of there the carolingians couldn't catch up but then there's a scene that uh, the chronicler rambert describes of charlemagne looking out the window and having a tear of sorrow saying you know he's he's lamenting saying you know i i'm terrified of what these these pagan people will do when i die and what will become of my empire right 
We yeah. don't know if that actually happened, but it's a great little story to say that, you know, the, the Carolingians were, were aware of who they were. And it makes sense because after they conquered Saxony, they, they shared a border with the Danes who were raiding in Frisia and they were raiding a little bit east uh, with the Aberdeis. So they did, didn't just burst out of nowhere, but the nature of the raids, the frequency of the raids uh, did change. Yeah. at a certain point kind of late 8th century and that's what we're really talking about so why why did it increase and what spurred on the changing nature of the viking age and viking activities in the rest of europe yeah i mean this is a good point um i think the the suddenness is just for the western people right you know i.e in england like you called out the lindisfarne mentioned in the chronicle um oh, yes or, the anglocentrism <laughs> yes exactly the english were like well we're the center of the world and we've never heard of these people before so uh, hence when they show up on our shores it's the first time um right. they you know they were very active in what what we say the east, uh, but basically say around the Baltic, um, you know, in what are now places like Latvia, Estonia, Poland, um, you know, it, what, even into Ukraine, of course, um, and we'll talk about that coming up with a, with a guest as well. But so that was that's that's predating all of this stuff that we're talking about in the eighth century. And so I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I actually wrote a piece that we'll um, link up in the description. Um, that was just this past August in 2022, where I say, I literally say this was no turning point in history, but basically what we have is an expansion of something that was already going on. Um, and it's just at that point, finally reaching the Western parts of Europe. And so those people are in shock and awe mode, but it's not the shock and awe is probably at the violence and the terror because they knew those people from before a little bit from trade but then it's like hey you used to trade with me now you're just like stealing my stuff what what's going on here you know yeah. and what so, happened well yeah it, it is i like what you say it's like it's an expansion of a trend that was already happening uh, it's a, a trend that has been given the name and i don't know if this still stands in academia anymore but it's called the great migration period yeah, so yeah. it's after the fall it of the is. roman empire and you had the angles and the saxons and the Jutes, which um, evidently have one mention in Bede's, so the chronicler Bede, B-E-D-E. -E. Yeah, the Venerable yeah. Bede, yes. Right, so yeah, Bede, there we go. I call him Bede, I don't know, whatever. The, in French, <laughs> dead. <laughs> but uh, he mentions the Jutes once, and then we never hear about them again, so we don't even know if they were real, but we'll just stick with the Angles and the Saxons, and they yeah. came over uh, to England, and then you had the Franks that moved into Gaul, and then from there, that opened up space for actually Scandinavians to move south a little bit too. So they, yeah. we had a lot of population movements. And the region of Brittany in France is a really good test case to show that the Viking Age was just a repeat of something that happened even before. Because before the Romans completely withdrew from Gaul, the uh, coast of, of what was then called Armorica, is the Breton P Peninsula. If we had a map, I could kind of point at it. But uh, so yeah, so I... Basically, how I describe Brittany is it's the arm that reaches into the Atlantic Ocean, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Romans called it Armorica, and they create they built what was called the first Atlantic Wall. So, if you recall World War II, the the Germans built an Atlantic Wall to repel the Allies. Well, the Romans were the first to create defenses around, and that's why they called it Armorica, essentially the armored coast, was mm -hmm. to repel raiders. And who were the raiders? 
They were a Germanic tribe, none other than the Franks, who had a very strong seafaring tradition that they then abandoned for for mainland invasions. But then the Vikings later, through two, three centuries later, pick up the gauntlet and essentially resume that that same activity. So if we go back and and we ask ourselves, well, why did the Franks start leaving home in their ships to raid the coast as far away as Brittany if they were leaving from the from the Baltic? We might be able to find parallels with this, you know, some similar conditions that may have caused the Vikings to leave in that same manner. Yeah. Okay. So there's yeah. All right. So along those lines, then let's 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 do just a couple of uh, minutes on you know six key kind of things that have generally been sort of out there in the ether amongst historians about why. And again, sort of, you know, cautioning here, we're never going to be like able to talk about this. And then at the end go, we figured it out. We know the one reason why they did this thing. It's like, it ain't ever going to happen. So all of this is just an exercise in like geeky, you know, stuff that you and I enjoy um, to talk about the possibilities here. But so my students at the beginning of class read this watershed kind of, and I, I'm using the word watershed, it kind of was, you know, in the mid, so in the mid aughts, like 2008 or so, James Barrett, who's an archaeologist, wrote this thing, and, and the title of the article is What Caused the Viking Age? Question mark. And he talks about these six things that, um, you know, basically it's kind of a historiography, you know, he's like, okay, these are the things that we've always sort of talked about. Uh, maybe this or that needs to be revisited. That kind of could probably be discredited, blah, blah, blah. So, all right, here we, here we are. So first and foremost, the Vikings are the most badass shipbuilders and seafarers the world has ever seen, right? So there's this, what he calls technical or technological determinism. The boats made him do it. What do you think about that? I, I kind of like it. I mean, because you give a kid a BB gun, what does he do? Shoot something. Shoots his eye he out. Shoots something. He shoots his eye out. <laughs> on, a, on a human level, that makes sense. Like, look at these ships. They are really fast. They can go really far, right? So somewhere right. around the middle of the 8th century, somebody figured out how to put down a keel. Now they have these giant 800 square foot sails. They're like, let's go somewhere and kill people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just finished the first boat, you know, in like May of 793, and then said, June, that's our month. Let's go to Lindisfarne. Yeah. They that's had still warm enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, wait. That's the next one. Okay, maybe the I think, yeah. So the boats, the boats play a role, but the boats maybe don't cause the Viking Age, right? It makes it so that they can do it, but they yeah. had ships before that. Yeah, but without so this this is one of the controversial. When did they figure out how to put down a keel? And we don't know. If somewhere in the middle of the eighth century, yeah. and that's really when they were able to go across the ocean yeah. before it was all oar powered. If you go all the way back to the Hertzsprung boat, right. uh, which was two thousand or is it two thousand years somewhere in there? Yeah, um, it's kind of we have these um, hieroglyphs, petroglyphs, petroglyphs. Um, I get the two confused. It's kind of embarrassing, but anyway, they're, they're carvings on a rock, <laughs> and it shows the it shows the the uh, Hertzspring boat. It's long, right? It's like a long canoe, and then they, it was powered by paddles, yeah. and then that goes into the later iterations, and we have several of these, and um, and so over time, so the previous iteration to what we'd call a Viking longship was the 
I'm spacing on the name, but it's from the seventh century. It just didn't have a keel. So they couldn't right. have a really big sail. So that's, so when you're going by, by oar, by paddle, it's just slower and you wouldn't be able to go from Norway to England on that. But right. as soon as you get that big 800 square foot sail, yeah. um, then, well, and then that technological determinism, what does it take to, to make an 800 square foot sail? Oh my God, it's a lot. Actually, the, the right. people that we now refer to as experimental archaeologists have done that work and it's an insane amount of work it's like well and and largely hey shout out to the ladies it's largely women who were making the sales because it's you know textile work um but you know there's something i could i could get the number and, and quote it here but um it's uh, you know like one person 10 hours a day for like a year to make one sale for a medium-sized warship uh you know that kind mm -hmm. of amount of person hours to do it so um yeah it's intense and also i mean you know just and the wood as what well, just everything i mean and this this actually also i should probably say we're talking about viking ships as though there is a viking ship i mean even the norse had different types of ships right they had smaller cargo ships they had like the big warship that is the thing that you're going to see you know on the movies and the tv and all of that um, but, you know, and they even had, you know, simple like Native American one log dugout canoes, you know, for more right. localized travel. So um, keep that in mind. And maybe that's something for another podcast. We'll like dive into the uh, the, the makings of a Viking ship or something. I, um, I do have a cheat code for the, the names of the styles of the ships. So you have your snook, the skill. The and then if you can't remember all, I think there's five. So if you can't, so they they goes from basically the the canoe to the ocean bearing whatever, and then the trade ship and then the long ship, right? And uh, so uh, what I tell people is is if you can't remember all all five names, just remember that the, at the Roskilde Viking Ship Museum, it's the Skuldalev one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's something too, right? Because even in the uh, very famous, you know, ship museum in Oslo, where they have the Gokstad and the Oseberg that we were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier, you know, all of those names, those are not like the, the Vikings didn't name their ships. Those are not like types of ships. Those are just the, the places that those ships were found, right? So right, the farm, the Oseberg yeah. farm. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So technological determinism, maybe, all right, we know they have ships. We know they're good sailors, but that maybe is probably not the cause of the Viking age. The other thing though, that you mentioned was, the warmth, right? And so that's one that has always been kind of thrown out there with that there is supposedly ha or has been, and people can Google this, it's called the medieval warm period. And it's, you know, this period of time that overlaps somewhat with the Viking age and that, oh, I know, well, these people for, you know, are from the North and they're sailing across the North Atlantic, if, at least if they're going in the westward direction. And if there's less icebergs the size of buses floating around, it's easier to get from point A to point B. And so this warming period, just like we're kind of going through a climactic warming period right now, um, that it happened then and it made sailing easier. I don't know. What do you think about that? My understanding from more recent scholarship is that that, that one in particular has been thoroughly thrown out. Yeah. as a root cause although i would like to say or add that when the franks were raiding the coast of Brittany several centuries before the romans were growing wine in england which is that means it was really warm is there something there i mean it, yeah. it's so hard to prove it's so right. hard to prove you know right. and that's a whole different level of scholarship although there was this great study that just came out that showed that talked about how 
at the end of the last ice age so the the big um you know ice sheets that were covering scandinavia in the last ice age were heavy so yes. they pushed the continents down and when they melted right. the continents started rising again. they're still rising now yep. and that's why for example when you go to denmark they have the the town of hedeby which was it was on the coast and now right. it's 50 kilometers inland yep. so uh and that's not because the water receded or the water level went down it's because the 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 ground actually rose up yeah. from not having the weight of the of the ice sheets on it yeah. uh and so if we in that that study that showed kind of basically proved that was showing that so you know that may have been what we have mistaken in the past for climatic changes it was actually changes in the land due to the elevation change right right, right. and anyway it's i'll see if i can find it and link it to this People can look into it. It's, re it's really interesting. I mean, is it is it fact yet? No. Is there a consensus? No. It's just one more idea to throw into the pot. <laughs> That's what we're doing here, stirring it up, right? So it's like, what's in here? Is there... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right too. I mean, that's definitely, uh, to my knowledge as well. I mean, that that part, and even Barrett in his article, he does say, you know, it's like, eh, you know, yeah, sure, it would make it easier to sail, but is it the cause? No. And furthermore, you know, as far as the actual kind of more accurate dating of this thing called the medieval warm period, that it probably didn't maybe start until after the Viking Age had already begun anyways. So, okay, maybe we'd kind of throw that one off the table a little bit. Um, the other thing is demographic determinism. So this yeah. idea of, um, you know, population pressure, pushing people out of Scandinavia, looking for places with more resources to settle and uh, things like that. Um, I don't know. This one is a little bit more in depth. Um, and polygyny and operational sex ratios. Some of that for is, sure. Which is academic speak for. Rich guys had too many wives. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, and that does become an important part of it. Although I, I, you know, as I wrote in my article last year, I mean, I don't, it's, I think that's part of it. I think there's a larger story going on, but the idea that, you know, you've got changing demographics back in Scandinavia, whether it's population pressure, i.e. there's, you know, too many people because they were part of the commercial revolution that was going on during the high Middle Ages and people were living a little bit better. Populations were increasing all over Europe. Um, but does it mean that it's an, enough to like actually, you know, start this full scale raiding and pushing people out into other areas? I mean, who who knows? I mean, that's still, I think, a little bit up for discussion. But the the thing that you did say there, I mean, that has more recently come into light as a possible role in this. And the fact that, you know, maybe not a lot of people know this, but the Norse at this time, uh, and I am saying Norse in a pan-Norse kind of Scandinavian way. I don't just mean people from Norway, um, that they were practicers of polygyny. And so that meant that women could only legally be married to one man at a time, but men could have multiple wives and concubines. And of course, we know they had slaves, so sex slaves and all of that. So it would be connected with a lot of women. And as you said, you know, so what happens, you know, well, <laughs> the, you know, as, as societies stratify and you get some guys who are wealthy and powerful and more so than others, then that means that they're able to attract more women to them and they kind of hoard the women. And then you got poor young guys who are like, hey, I can't even get a wife. And furthermore, I don't have enough money to afford to pay the bride price. So I think I'm going to have to go steal some stuff from Lindisfarne so I can come home mm -hmm. and pay the bride price. I don't know. Well, now a, a connection I'd like to make to the first one about you know making these ships that were extremely resource intensive, 
thinking about having to convert land from being for crops to feeding sheep to make the wool to make the sale for the forest to be you know i think were they regrowing i think they were regrowing forests too right they like they would replant trees but then they cut down like there's a there was a big thing but when you're converting land so instead of feeding people you're feeding sheep well then you have less food and then if the population starts increasing for a variety of reasons perhaps more wealth from what you're bringing home from the utilization of these ships right that could have been another thing to like continue spurring on Right. Then it becomes an economics thing, right? Like, oops, we converted too much land for the sheep. We don't have enough room for people. So you're just going to have to find something else. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'd rather have my ship than you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think it's all wrapped up together, right? Isn't it? Because, of course, yeah. you know, as you might imagine, I mean, economic determinism is one of the factors that has to be yeah. discussed. Um, I mean, for me and for... <laughs> For my money, it's all about the money. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. I Me mean, too. I think it's it's silver. Yeah, it's it's hands it's, down. And and Cash I think it's silver, but I think it's uh, I you know as I wrote, it's it's also it's slaves. You know that was a very lucrative business at the time, and a lot of people yeah. were engaged in it. And that is a you know, if you're going to go to some of these places and steal things, you know you don't have to just steal the little you know gold and silver trinkets that a few monks might have. You can also steal the people who are there, right. and we know it's well documented that the Scandinavians did that. So. Maybe, you know, so part of the whole, you know, needing the money for the bride price so you can get married in Scandinavia and all of that demographic kind of push, uh, you know, that fuels an economic element. There's some of that probably. Yeah. Is, yeah. Was it the thing? Mm. The other thing I, I will say with the um, that often gets, you know, talked about and Barrett does as well in demographic determinism is the fact that Scandinavia may have, well, what he refers to as a youth bulge, but primarily male in that there are more males than females. And so then there's intense competition between males for the females that there are. And I mean, we know Norsemen were out taking captive women and even, you know, moving them around to other places. I mean, we definitely have, you know, genetic evidence now that even just little Iceland is, you know, someplace that was settled originally by largely Norway, Norwegian men, but Celtic women. Um, And, but also the practice of infanticide. And Mm -hmm. the idea that they may have done, you know, selective female infanticide. So then what does that mean? If a culture is choosing to kill more female infants than male infants, um, and this is not unique to the Norse, this goes way back, the Spartans are well documented as having done this and all of that. But, But the problem with the infanticide argument, which I think is also, and maybe not entirely debunked, but it just can't be seen as like a major contributing factor is that it's very hard, even archeologically to prove intent. We can look at skeletons, you know, oh, here's a skeleton of a little male infant. Here's a skeleton of a little female infant. We can tell the way that they died. So if they were exposed or they, you know, were murdered somehow or what have you, but we can't tell that the people actually intended to kill this little girl baby because she was a girl. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's that's impossible to to yeah. really prove. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, it is Price who ha- has some good, uh, interesting evidence in 
uh, that he talks about in his most recent book about we do know that through testing, again, the hard sciences involved in archaeology on some of the um, skeletons of little children, that the male children were healthier and that they were um, suffering, or I should say the female children were suffering upwards of like 30% more like uh, malnutrition. So it appears that the boy kids were being fed more and better food than the girls. Um, so that that could maybe suggest something like a preference for males, but I, you know, so the infanticide thing as a demographic, you know, shifter, who knows. Um, so the money, yeah, that's that's going to be a big part of it. Also politics. What about that? My students always ask me, because this is the idea too of like, well, you've got these various polities around that are kind of weak. And so they look like easy pickings for Vikings because they can always sort of exploit where there's nobody who's going to be able to defend against them. They always ask me like, why didn't Charlemagne just go and take over Scandinavia? Why do you think that is? He was busy putting down rebellions. And in fact, a rebellion is one of the, one of the leading uh, pieces of evidence could we, it's not really evidence but it's part of this idea of the political the political turmoil that led to the the vikings leaving right it's kind of like yeah. this revenge and it has to do with two fairly disparate events right that are documented uh, that people have made a connection between that is really loose so it's you know uh, but we had charlemagne basically in the what's uh when was when was Ver the massacre of verden in the 780s we'll just yeah. put it there um so in the 780s you had a saxon rebellion charlemagne went you know moved toward it and put it down they fought this big battle on the aller river i think it was uh and the carolingians won they captured we think anywhere from a thousand to 4500 prisoners the estimates are hard to piece together because everybody has a different version <laughs> and there's yeah, multiple yeah. sources that reference it. Uh, yeah. But one of the things we know that they did was they did a forced baptism, which was they took the prisoners down into the Alla River, they baptized them and then drowned them while they were baptizing them. So it's just like, oh, now you're clean and you're dead. Uh, the leader of that rebellion was a guy named Widukind, who happened to be the brother-in-law of one of the kings in Denmark at the time, Siegfried. Uh, so there would have been knowledge of this event and it would have been very uh, disheartening or not disheartening, but uh, per, uh, disturbing. There we yeah. go. That's the right word. Yeah, probably <laughs> so, <cool. laughs> uh, And very soon thereafter, so this is the 780s and very soon thereafter, then you have the the attack on Lindisfarne. And then there was a chronicler in England at the time, Simeon of, of Durham. Actually, no, he was yeah, later, yeah. but yeah. he recounts that idea. And then he mentions that the Vikings who attacked Lindisfarne took some of the monks and drowned them in the sea. And this yeah. is seen sometimes by historians as a, a an act of retribution. Yeah. Uh, kind of basically saying you drowned our guys in the sea we're going to drown your guys or drowned our guys in the river we'll drown your guys in the sea now uh, going back to can we prove this yeah. no but there were going back to they didn't just appear out of nowhere there were relations between the between the carolingians and the danes one of the things that happened around that time and i forget what year it was but uh, charlemagne put through this edict that basically said no more not an edict but like he put in this law that that said, we, we're going to cut off trade. And what he was trying to do was, it, it wasn't necessarily that he was trying to cut off all trade with Scandinavia. He had this nasty little problem of Carolingian weapons, specifically swords, yeah. Yeah. which we'll yeah. discuss yeah. with uh, Rainer Oskarsson and William Short in a later podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're getting in the hands of Scandinavians who then were turning around and raiding Carolingian lands and killing Carolingians with their own weapons. So, <laughs> so he put in kind of this, and then that's when swords 
ended up becoming part of this black market trade. But inadvertently, what he did when he cut off that that trade was he cut he cut Scandinavians off from all trade with the Carolingians, which Danes in particular relied on. Right there's a back and forth, and so that could have been a political cause where when they cut that off, then you would have had a political or a economic hardships from essentially an embargo. Yeah. Right? And, and then that might've spurred things on or exacerbated a, a previously existing, like, like with my research, for example, for me, that's more of an exacerbation of previous conditions that would have ultimately culminated in a Viking age. It's just when Charlemagne said, you know what, let's just cut off trade. It just made it go that much faster. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think the interesting thing too about Charlemagne, I think Charlemagne's really interesting. Um, and uh, I mean, for those of you who don't know, right? I mean, he's a famous Frankish Frankish king. He's um, part of this dynasty known as the Carolingian dynasty from the Latin word Carolus, which means Charles, which is his name, also his grandfather's name. Uh, he rules from what, 768 to 814. It's a long rule uh, in, in Europe at the time. And he's a powerhouse guy. And plus he's Catholic, right? I mean, he's Christian and he's he and his family are working with the papacy, in my mind, and I'm not the first to say this, uh, to essentially create a theocracy in Western Europe. I mean, so like you're saying, he's putting down rebellions, but in the process, he is building an empire and creating a theocracy. Yeah. It is a Christian empire, period. And so then it does beg the question, too, of kind of like of the last sort of component in this list of ideological determinism, you know, what role would something like religious ideology play in this as far as, you know, you're my enemy because you're not Christian, you're my enemy because you are Christian, um, and, you know, all of the different dynamics that go uh, with that. Um, I mean, there's a really great article by a medievalist historian uh, who specializes in warfare, Guy Halsall, um, who talks about um, this, basically this ideological and cultural divide, you know, that it's not, well, no, they're not attacking them because they're heathens or they're not attacking them because they're Christians. It's like, it's, it's, it's not religiously motivated. They're, they want the wealth, they want the stuff. Um, and they don't really care that those people are Christian. They're just in, in possession of portable wealth. And that's what the Vikings are primarily looking for in these early raids. And so, um, you know, how much ideology plays a role in that regard, who knows, um, for, for either side. But, you know, they're just culturally different uh, people. And I mean, and it also does beg the idea of just embedded culture in Scandinavia, which Barrett discusses in this article, of this idea of honor and fatalism and you know, what it means to be a warrior. And that, I mean, and I, I do echo a bit of that in my article as well, as far as, you know, when you, when you take the cultural and ideological, uh, you know, viewpoint of the Norse at the time, and then, you know, lump on top of that or within it, the economic imperative, those two things really drive each other. You know, they want the money, they want the wealth and the power and the status and the prestige that wealth conveys, but it's also driven by a very deeply held cultural ethos that is all about being an ultimate warrior who's honorable and, uh, you know, this has been fated for them. They definitely believed in that. It's very clear. Um, and, you know, that, that this is how you conduct yourself in life. Um, so I don't know, what do you think about those kinds of ideological things? Well, that's a, the concept of social capital. The acquisition of the wealth is as important as the wealth. And yeah. that is that is central to my novels, my character. He is propelled forward, not by actually 
accumulating wealth, but of accumulating the fame and reputation associated with the accumulation of that wealth, right? So he's he's trying to become the the you know the alpha. That's a terrible way to put it, but it's know. true. It's true. But it's, and that's how and in the book I talk about that where like he does he does a great deed. It gets into the hands of the skulls who then sing songs about him, and then that's his recruitment tool, and that's how he gets people to follow him. And that that would have been incredibly important for somebody who wanted to be a ship captain and go abroad and 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 do these things. So that could have been one of the propelling forces is they weren't necessarily out for wealth. They were out for the fame and fortune of going on this far off adventure. Right. It's uh, so there's a little bit of both playing in with each other because the wealth would have been important in the end as well. If yeah. we go back to those economic, you know, oh, there's a trade embargo. We're out of this. We need to go get it. But then there all too willing to go out and do it because the acquisition of that wealth does pay off socially back home. Uh, and, and, you know, now I've got this really fancy ship. Let's use it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then let's build another ship because now I have the wealth and the power and the prestige to actually bring together the types of natural and human resources that it takes to make a ship because that takes a while and a lot of stuff. So that confers even more sort of status and power on myself. And then I send men out to do that, tell them that they get a share of the loot. So that's going to elevate them in their own sort of status in life. Um, and then they go out and they come back with the stuff. Yay. They go out and they get in some battle and they die. Still yay for Vikings because it's like it's a total win-win situation, right? Because then, right. because we know also, right, from things like the the Havamal poem, that what what matters the most is reputation. These people are not Christian. There's no idea of what lives on forever is your eternal soul. What lives on forever for them is their name and remembering them and their reputation. So, the whole idea of going out and raiding for these reasons is just like. Yeah, I mean, for them, don't you think it just makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. I do want to interject. I think we're running a little short on time. Okay, yeah, true. I actually thank you for that. So, um, well, I mean, so these, uh, you know, we can talk about these things all day, but so these are some of the things that have been sort of thrown out there as potential hypotheses for why. I mean, obviously, it's probably like we're saying a mixing pie, just throw all of them in and some are going to bubble to the top more than others. Um, some are going to help, you know, start the whole thing. Some are going to help just sort of move it along as it gets going. Um, did we but, uh did we get through all six potential did yeah oh okay sweet yeah that's i, I wasn't oh. sure if we got through all six because we kind of kept because they do all connect to each other right. so sometimes it's hard to like pull them apart from each other yeah um, exactly one of the things i like to just throw in and i'll i'll summarize this as quickly as i can be as concise as possible is the idea that different individuals would have had different factors playing into their motives yes. and and we look at the viking age as this global kind of nebulous they all did this, right? right? But each individual, and the, and it was an individualistic society, as far as we can tell. Yes, there were the social bonds between basically the chieftain and his hearth and all these all these things, but personal reputation, personal wealth, personal fortune were important as well. So we know they were individualistic to a certain extent. So different people in different areas would have had different motives. And one of those, just to throw in an example that I like to think of, a narrative that I've created through this the study of basically my research is you know this whole salt hypothesis right and right. it may not have impacted other people but you can imagine a small town in norway that 
fish and we have that recent study that came out with the herring that made me really excited but anyway so they're fishing for herring but then they need salt to preserve it so that they can trade with the swedes and so you have this one little village where they're out of salt because the trade with the carolingians which is where you know the salt mines in salzburg that's where salt came through before gets cut off they're out of a resource so then they have to go looking for it and then they go west and the next thing you know there's raids in western france in the richest salt product producing region right of western europe uh repeated right by vikings for ostensibly in part salt probably slaves to wine yeah. they have very good wine there but anyway so it's just so their motives would have been very different than say somebody in denmark moving into england right where it's like that could have been more of they converted all the land for sheep to make sales now we can't feed people and so then you get this big migration into england where there's a lot of arable land uh, in order to farm and so forth and and actually that's going back to the historical fiction piece of it bernard cornwell in his book talks about that right about the idea that the danes moved in we don't know if that's true or not but it's a it's one of the ideas right yeah, I know. And I think that's a really good point to make because it's easy to do when you like go, oh, we're talking about the Viking Age. I mean, we're glossing over like a 300 year period of time. That's a lot of time. You know, that would be like people looking at us now and talking about us in terms of like what people look like during the American Revolutionary War. You know, I mean, we, we aren't those people. We don't re really even resemble them very much anymore. But, you know, they would lump us all together as Americans of that time, you know, and mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they are individualistic to a certain degree. They're doing it for different reasons. And we know that there is a difference between Western activity and Eastern activity. And as we'll talk about with our guests coming up about, you know, sort of the Vikings and Slavic lands, they're plugging into a whole different world over there, right? I mean, in the West, it's mostly Christian people. It's a lot of little backwater places. I mean, there's some big places like Paris or whatever, but even still... Where in the East, I mean, my God, there have been peoples of various ethnicities and religions and whatever, and, and urban and non-urban, like for thousands of years. And so it's a whole other thing for them to run into. And of course, they're going to have different motives and come away with different things. But I think at the end of the day, and this is the thing that I always tell my students too, it's like, if you learn nothing else about Vikings after taking my class, just learn that they were opportunists in the extreme whether it's salt or slaves or, you know, anything else that either could resource themselves or they could monetize, they're going to do it just like anybody else in that time, right? Survival is the name of the game. So, mm -hmm. and bettering your conditions if you can, just like mm -hmm. now. <laughs> so now that we've presented our viewers with this lovely soup and they've yeah. been able to taste the soup together right. <laughs> yeah, nice. without yeah. being able to say what one ingredient makes it soup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right? a perfect analogy, and, right? Uh, so we have this nice soup and we'll dig in. We'll actually, we'll dig in repeatedly into certain, certain of these ingredients and expand on them. I yeah. think that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, real quick. Do you want to introduce who are next? Yeah. But no, our next guest is going to be Rainer Oscar and William Short. But then after that, we're going to have... Yeah, so after that, so speaking of um, some of the kind of uh, location specific and also uh, a particular, uh, as it appears, a particular motive of uh, the early Viking raids in the West, uh, the monasteries. So uh, we're going to have Dr. Matthew Panessi, who is a historian at Ohio Dominican University, and he specializes in the Carolingian monasteries, the Frankish monasteries, and primarily the education, the systems of education and the training of monks, but also life in those monasteries. 
um, and in the eighth and ninth centuries. So right as the Viking Age is getting going and really ramping up. And so um, we thought it would be interesting to talk to him about like, all right, tell us a little bit about what's going on in those places. And we know they have a few trinkets here and there, a few crucifixes to steal or something like that. But really, what else is there that would have drawn Vikings to them in such droves? I hope he says salt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Awesome. Well, fantastic. We have our next guest lined up. That's uh, wonderful. And so that's it from us for today. And we will sign out. Yeah. Again, I'm right. CJ Adrian, co-host number one. Yeah. I'm Terry Barnes, co-host number two. And it's Thank you.